You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Monday, May the 30th. For the sport of horse racing, a sad weekend with the news of the death of Lester Piggott, aged 86. Sad, but we must celebrate a life that was quite simply extraordinary. Some of his records will surely stand the test of time. 30 British classics, well over 4,000 career wins and nine derbies. And in Derby Week, we will try to understand the simply mesmeric effect that Lester Piggott had not only on horse racing in Britain, in Ireland and around the world, but on the national psyche at a time when horse racing and Piggott himself were both in their heyday. Over the next few moments, you'll be hearing from some people who knew him best and whose families were closest to him. Magnus and Sangsters and Vincent Rossiter, who was the work rider of Survivor, jockeys Kieran Fallon, Jimmy Quinn, starting out when Lester Piggott was at the end of his career, trainers Luca Kumani and Andre Fab. We'll also be getting a, a deeply personal tribute from Steve Mellish, whose punting life and career owe so much to Lester Piggott. But first of all, David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror. Dave, how do you begin to try and understand Lester Piggott's impact, to try and contextualise where he fit in British horse racing and worldwide sport? Well, I think there's no doubt in my mind, Nick, that Lester Piggott was the single biggest figure in British flat racing. And I think he's, he's not the most prolific. He, he's behind Pat Eddery and Sir Gordon Richards in that respect, in terms of total number of winners. What is it? 4493. But I think there are a couple of factors that make Lester Piggott the, the, the biggest figure. Um, if we, if we, Go back to the Victorian era, obviously, we've got Fred Archer, we go into the 20th century and Sir Gordon Richards. Now, of course, both those were, you know, they were racing heroes at a time when the sport was absolutely massive. The thing with Piggott, I suppose, is is the advent of, of live TV sport. The first derby uh, was televised live in 1931. Um, we know that Lester Piggott had his first riding the race in 1951 and then of course for the ensuing decades when tv racing was absolutely massive piggott was the the man that people turned to you know that that it's it said rightly it's been rightly said over the last 24 hours that in terms of the derby there wasn't really a lot of point in studying form of the runners anti-post your job was to find out Lester Piggott's intended mount and of course on a record nine occasions if you managed to work that out you found the winner and so just the fact that racing was so massive and and his the longevity of his career um the first winner in 1948 the last one in 1994 that he he was there for that golden age of television the, the fact that he was called Lester a slightly um unusual 
uh, first given name as opposed to David or Nicholas. He, he was known simply as that, and obviously he made it into, into popular culture. Um, I think that it's also worth making the point that this happened despite his his reluctance. He was by no means a, a media darling. Um, we know about his partial deafness and his speech impediment. Um, but despite all that, he was, uh, as I say, he, he was the single biggest figure in in British racing obviously any any jockey now and, and we would we would immediately think of Frankie de Tory exists in a in an age when there isn't so much when TV is not such a big a deal um, and of course racing isn't the national obsession that it once was either so for me uh, and not just for me Piggott would be the number one well when a career spans such a huge breadth of, of time and spans different generations it's bound to touch people of of all ages and I suppose people at my sort of vintage just come in at the tail end of where Lester Piggott's really likely to have left a mark on you if you happen to have been up close and personal with it it's going to have left a significant mark and that's the case with Tom Magna who was growing up just at the the tail end of the time that Lester Piggott was riding for his grandfather Vincent O'Brien uh, and his own father, uh, John Magner, in partnership with, with Robert Sangster as the Coolmore partners then. Um, Tom, that must have been pretty extraordinary. Did you realise, do you think, the, the sort of presence uh, of legend that you were in at the time? Well, somebody said to me uh, about six months ago, what, what got you into racing? And I suppose when you walked into the house and sitting around the kitchen table was Vincent... Robert, Dad, and and Lester, and they were going through the the plans back then for horses to go to Ascot or horses to go to Epsom. He was just, um, yeah, you, you knew there was something pretty special there. But I suppose Lester was to, you know, was to racing what what Sinatra was to music, or you know what um, Sir Donald Bradman down here was to cricket. He was, you know, you just knew when you walked in, you were around something special. And in terms of the relationship that he had with with your grandfather, Doctor Vincent O'Brien, it was a it was a pretty intriguing one. Two very intense characters. Um, I'd say the, I'd love to have been, have been a fly on the wall uh, over the years uh, in the back of the jeep of Ballydoyle. But you know, you just when you heard the stories um, of you know when when things were good, they were very good. But then, obviously, around the time of El Gran Señor, you know, I remember the grandfather said that that El Gran Senor was the best horse he ever trained. And they obviously went to, to Epsom and there was, you know, the, there was a lot of pressure on the bookmakers that day. Uh, as everybody knows, you know, the, there was huge faith in El Gran Senor and a great ride by, by Christy Roach got Secreto up on the line. So I think uh, the grandfather might have went around the corner and had to take a few minutes and just realise that, you know, A, my son just won the English Derby, but B, Sangster and the lads probably had the biggest bet they ever had on El Gran Senor. So he just sort of I took a big deep breath in and just as he was letting it out, there was a little tug on his coattails from Leicester. I bet you miss me now. Tom Magna recalling the 1984 Derby and his grandfather, Vincent O'Brien, the tumult of emotions and Lester Piggott's merciless mischief, uh, reminding the Coolmore partners what they were missing, having parted company with him in favour 
of Pat Eddery. Piggott would go on later in life to resume the partnership, much more of that a little bit later on. But Robert Sangster's son, Ben, also remembers that uncompromising but dry wit. But for him, his childhood and his entry into the game was all about those white, green and blue silks being ridden to victory in a prestigious race week after week by the peerless Piggott. My gosh, Nick, it was. It was a it was a truly phenomenal time. I mean, Leicester up on board, the minstrel, nineteen seventy seven. I was a young man, young boy at that stage, uh, at school, um, watching this 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 iconic figure driving the horse home over the line to beat Hopgrove and then a couple of years later, you know, he conquered uh, all on a ledge in the arc. Um, two years in succession um, and then between that there was I mean there was just yeah I mean it was sort of a rather spoiling area era for a young man or for anyone or for that whole team I mean I, I think sort of if they didn't win a, a, a stakes race or a group race or on, on a Saturday you know it was a sort of odd odd weekend if you know what I mean so he was he was Leicester and Vincent and the triumvirate was it was just a phenomenal time to be around I'd say um, can you remember much about the relationship that, that your father had with Leicester? I think they had a very good working relationship and, and, and certainly a very, very good friendship. Um, I mean, my father, I think, used to sort of, he just used to love sort of obviously the style and the way Leicester wrote, but also the little bit of sort of skullduggery or trickery or, 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 or naughtiness that Leicester had in that sort of, you know, arriving in an airport and, 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 and coming out through customs and seeing someone else's taxi waiting with, with, with their name on the fact that he just had no regard and jumped in the taxi and off he went to, whether it was York or Longshore or whatever. I think, I think that little bit of mischief certainly um, made my father really enjoy his company, you know, because he wasn't necessarily that straightforward um, in that type of way. Ben Sangster there. But it wasn't just the likes of Sangster's father, Robert, nor Vincent O'Brien, nor Noel Merlis, nor many of the other great names of the sport who had reason to be thankful uh, to Lester Piggott. He was a huge favourite of the fan. Dave Yates has already talked about his place in the golden age of televised horse racing and a huge ally to the punter as well. Such was his great reliability in a big race. Steve Mellish, now a popular television personality, remembers vividly the late 70s and early 80s as he was growing up watching horse racing, particularly as a large bet on Comanche Run, trained by Luca Kumani and ridden by Lester Piggott, enabled him to live his dream and bet on horses for a living. I put it to Steve that really Lester Piggott had changed his life. Well, yeah, I mean, in a definite, um, uh, in a definite way, yeah, certainly in the 1984 ledger he made a he wrote Comanche Run which did have a which was a um, a life changing uh, thing for me the reason um, I really liked him as a jockey was because I think he he, he, he knew he knew he, he, he knew how to ride how to get the best out of his horses and the, the, the significant thing about 
Comanche run isn't the win in the ledger. It's when he first got on him, which was at Glorious Gilbert in the Gordon Stakes, I think it was called, or is still called. And he did what was so, I thought as a punter, so obviously what the horse needs is. He rode the horse much more positively. The horse had been beaten at Asker and had been beaten uh, at Newmarket. And both times I remember coming away feeling the horse should have won. He was just given a sort of an ordinary hold the horse up and he just lacked a bit of pace. Leicester got on him in the Gordon Stakes. He made virtually all the running, the horse was transformed from being a pretty good horse into being a classic type horse. That's and that's what you had with Leicester. You had if, if he was if it was a horse he was bothered about, you know, if it was a race he was bothered about, he would he would leave no stone unturned in finding out um, what the horse really needed. So you know he was not one dimensional. Some horses need to make the runners, some horses need to be held up, some horses needed cover, some horses didn't. He would know that to the nth degree, and that's what you were getting. It was professionalism, if you like, but he really knew his stuff and knew how to get the best out of your horse and say, uh, that's what I remember about the horse you know, who did change my life. Wasn't the winning ride, although that was great. It was the where he got on in the first time and you suddenly, you know, he worked out what the horse needed. How did you feel when you heard that Piggott was replacing Daryl McCargo on Comanche run for the 84 Ledger? <laughs> Uh, I half thought it would happen, I'll be honest with you, Nick, because it's well known it was a friend of Ivan Allen. Um, I felt incredibly relieved. I thought it turned something from being likely into being, uh, you know, likely to win into being very likely to win. As it happens, all things got injured and there were, there were, all, there were other, other stress things involved. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was, uh, I, don't, I don't think Daryl, I don't think Daryl McCall would have won. Uh, that I'm sure he wouldn't have won that day. And I think you can say that about a number of his really, really, really big rides. You know, I don't think anybody else would have run on Roberto the day he won. Um, and I don't think anybody else would have won a few of the ledgers he wrote, Roberto in particular. And he was... He, he did make, a, you know, he made that tiny difference, but at the top level, it's everything. Yeah, for those of us who, who aren't fortunate enough to remember Steve, ju- just give us a flavour of just how big a deal he was to a young race goer, a young punter at that time, just him being there. It's been mentioned in a few of the papers today about how he, how he was talked about in the same breath as, you know, the stars of the time. Muhammad Ali would have been the, the most famous sports star of around that time. Pele would have been the greatest footballer at that time. And, yeah, I mean, Leicester was considered that. We all knew he was world-class, but he'd been the winners everywhere. It wasn't just in, you know, parochial Britain, he'd been as big winners in the in, in, in America. He was he was fully accepted as being a true great. And I love the fact, this is all a part of my personality, I love the fact he did it without making any effort. In fact, in many ways, he made an effort not to be popular. He never, ever courted publicity. <laughs> One of the things I always quite liked about him is that he didn't really give you know, tinkers, whether people liked him or didn't like him. So you weren't getting this great personality. He got there purely on the on his on his amazing will and his amazing talent. Clearly there were flaws. Clearly you can't, you know, look back and if you were on the receiving end of, of him getting on rides or, or whatever, you may not have at that moment been in love with him. But you would certainly, certainly have respected him. And I think I think I think the aura I think was just about this was a man who was doing his own thing. I think he used his deafness and stuff to his own, own um, you know, for his own benefit as well. I think he was he was selectively deaf, if you like. All those things, I think he, he was, for, it made him, he probably came from a shy boy who 
grew into a uh, private man. And I think that was part of it. No one really understood him. No one understood him from the outside, but everybody admired him. Steve Mellish, punter and television personality, uh, with particular reason to thank Lester Piggott, the man who trained Comanche Run, was the great Luca Kumani. He was, uh, on a horse, he was a genius. There's no doubt about that. He was uh, probably the best jockey that ever lived and probably the best jockey will, any of us will ever see. And uh, as a man, he was a difficult uh, man to get to know well because he was very introverse. And, um, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't an open character. He wasn't an open book. He mainly kept things for himself and uh, said as little as, as he could get away with it. Uh, but he was also very had a wicked sense of humour, and can, could can be or could could have been very very entertaining when he wanted to. Oh, he'd ring you up and he would say, "I'll ride that one," and um, and you when he when he said, "I'll ride that one," you just had to say yes. So flattered, Lester would ring you to ask for the ride that you immediately said yes. Uh, when, if unless you had a, a stable jockey, and that's where the difficulty came with Comanche Run and Darren McCarg. So, so t- how did it actually unfold that that Leicester got back on? What what's the true story? Because I've heard so many versions. Well, Darren was a stable jockey, and Darren was recommended to me. The irony of this is that Darren was recommended to me by Ivan Allen, who was the, the owner of Comanche Run. And Ivan uh, was a very clever man, and he knew everything that was going on. He made it his business to know everything. And uh, when uh, Darrell finished his contract with Dermot Weld, Ivan told me, you must get that jockey. He's very, very good. So I listened to him, and I, I got him. And uh, Darrell wrote Comanche Run uh, uh, when he was a three-year-old, and uh, then he got suspended. Then Comanche Run's last race before the late was going to be a good one. I think it was the Golden Stakes. And uh, so Lester got on to him because uh, obviously Ivan Ivan was a very good friend of Lester. And uh, so uh, Lester rode him in the, in the Golden Stakes and, and won. So after that, um, it started a sort of tug of war of who was going to ride it. I wanted Daryl to be back on him because because loyalty, and he was my jockey, and I didn't want to break that because it would have caused problems with everybody and, and, and strife. And Ivan said that Lester must ride him. And sure enough, between the two of them, they won the argument, and Lester ended up on the horse. Um, and in a way, thank God he did, because it made sure that the horse would win. I mean, Lester knew everything. There wasn't anything that went past him unnoticed. Trainer Luca Kumani there. And the more you listen, David Yates, the more it strikes you that it's not really about numbers. We can talk about records, 30 British classics. Well, Dottori's got 21 and might get close, but probably won't get by it. No one in our lifetimes, I don't think, will ever get to to nine derbies. But there's so much more colour in this portrait of, of Leicester Piggott than, than just a numerical list of achievements. And we heard before... Luca from from Steve Mellish there about about just how important he was to people who are the lifeblood of the game, people who are, are trying to make money by placing a wager. I think that in terms of the punter, Nick, I think that this is just worth something that we should discuss. Uh, this is something we should discuss briefly. I think that you know 
my betting is always a, a, a pretty much private affair. Um, you know, I, I don't really tell people an awful lot about it, even perhaps a, a very small coterie of other punters that, that I speak to on a regular basis. And I think that a punter's relationship with a jockey is an extremely interesting one. You know, you, you, you place your faith and your, your, you manifest that by, by placing your money in the hands of jockeys. Um, sometimes, whilst one advocates, of course, gambling responsibly, we are all prone sometimes to go in above the level that we might otherwise have done on reflection and sometimes we a punter will think i really need this to win and so you're putting your faith um in a jockey and it's a very intense trusting relationship and of course it's one most punters never meet jockeys to you know they never meet their heroes in that sense but there's a there's a special kind of feeling uh, that you have towards a jockey when in situations like that when one of them does win and you're relieved as much as anything and i think that Piggott above all was the was the jockey that those punters were were happy to place their hands in their their, their faith in his hands um and that they knew that their money was in safe hands with regard to Piggott's personality the fact that he was not media friendly, there was something of an information vacuum and that was filled by people who were just trying to uh, join the dots and fill in those gaps. And, you know, the, the, the stories about um, Lester Piggott being, uh, being ruthless and, and being perhaps um, mean with money. What did punters care about that? As long as you put your faith in that superlative jockey, he delivered the goods we wouldn't care how he chose to spend or not to spend his money. We'd consider that his affair and his affair alone. We were just happy that we were able to draw and we were able to draw principally because of the expertise of that jockey. Over the last 24 hours, we've seen loads of show reels, you know, the, the swaggering Nijinsky. We've seen the battling uh, Royal Academy at the Breeders' Cup in 1990. But, as 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 many people have mentioned, Roberto in 1972, he was the three to one favourite, and I don't think any jockey that I've seen before or since would have won on that horse. And that really is what marks Lester Piggott out uh, on his own. But while perhaps no one has come close to matching the effect of Lester Piggott on the wider public, there have been one or two jockeys, particularly at Epsom, that have been spoken of in revered tones. And top of the list, Kieran Fallon, widely acknowledged to be one of the best recent practitioners of rides around the Downs. But even Fallon, very junior, when Piggott was coming toward the end of his career, remembers just how awestruck he was by the mere presence of the peerless Piggott. All the younger jockeys, you know, and I think the older jockeys, there was just something about him, you know, that, uh, that he had. He had his airs like royalty, you know. And um, like I said to the to the to the boys, you, I couldn't wait to tell him what I what I was going to do in the race. You know, you're like you're going to bound him and tell him you're marking his card for him. You know, it was the best education I ever got. You know, but um, it was it was just you know, he was just a genius. You know, and like in in any sport, you know, it, it's great to meet people like this. Not alone be able to compete with them. You know. 
So it was great. It was it was it was an honor really to be around when 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 he um when he was riding. I mean, can you remember the, the first time you rode in the same race as him? Yeah, at, at Newbury. I was in a race at Newbury. I was riding stack rock in the sprint. She was a really good filly. My bet, my, my, actually, the, and, and it was a good race as well. It was a, and um, he arrived in beside me, you know, and he just looked at me and I kind of bound him, you know. What are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm going to make the running, sir, you know. And Sir. he jumped out, I, I popped next thing, he's popped right in behind me, he followed me all the way, he knew who he had to beat, that was the one he had to beat anyway, so he knew what I was going to do, he followed me all the way, but the following hour he just pulled out, boom, got me on the line. <laughs> he just had the he- had the hex over everybody. Yeah, yeah he did. That was my education to English racing, and it was the best education I ever got, I never told anyone what I was doing again. <laughs> I was gutted with myself after when I came in, if I didn't, but because it was Leicester. You wouldn't have done it for anybody else. Obviously, your 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 career will always be remembered for how well you rode Epsom, and people talk about your brilliant rides on Oath and Chriskin. How much did you go back and look at the tapes of Piggott? What I always, look, I always looked at every race. I always looked at all his rides, you know. And I would love him to be able to speak to him and ask him, you know. But but then he wasn't around, you know. I know Alan Monroe did went and seen him as well before he won on generous. You know, but um, even though I'd say when he's retired, he wouldn't give you a whole lot away. He never did. Even when he retired, he kept all his own little um, secrets or his own ways, you know. But you have to respect him for that. Kieran Fallon there. Now, there's one man who is still riding today, would you believe, who was fully licensed and operational before Piggott retired for the first time in 85. In 84... He had his first ride. He's Jimmy Quinn. It was my first ride at Doncaster, and um, I happened to be drawn beside Leicester. I was worried about the ride. I was more worried about being drawn beside Leicester. Anyways, you know, everyone like speaks and whatever, blah, 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 and nobody's saying anything. And just as the last horse is coming in and we're about to go, Leicester said, and he's, as he does, keep straight. And I went, sorry, what? And of course, well, that was it. It was all over. Stalls up and gone. I missed the kick about 10 lengths. <laughs> that was me. End of. Goodbye. And I kept on. I registered till now. You know what to do, you know. When he trained, him and his wife Susan, I, I, rode, I rode a few winners from, you know. So I travel race with him. You know, well, I didn't travel with him. He traveled with me <laughs> uh, over the years, you know. So it was good. I actually got on quite well with him. I used to have a laugh at him. You know, when he came back second time around, first time around, I was like, I was, you know, everyone was like, like scared of him. Well, I was, because I was younger, you know what I mean? I was too young and whatever. But when he came back second time around, like, he, we used to, everyone used to have a, used to have a crack and joke with us, you know? It was good. I enjoyed his company, you know what I mean? He'd all be, he'd, he'd ask his questions, you know, I'd just come questions out of the blue, you know? Jimmy Quinn, still riding today, and on his first ride, had the fortune or misfortune to be drawn upside Lester Piggott. So the picture is well built up of a man who was brilliant, sublimely talented, could make horses run for him like no other, but was also mischievous, occasionally impish, a very dry sense of humour, uncompromising, ruthless, but perhaps above all else, always inquisitive, always wanting to know more with a great thirst for knowledge. That came through incredibly strongly when I caught up earlier this morning with Vincent Rossiter. Vincent, who was one of the second, third, fourth change jockeys 
at Ballydoyle in County Tipperary in the 1960s and who did nearly all the preparatory work on Lester Piggott's most brilliant derby winner, Sir Ivor. He, he, I mean, he always thought he was the best derby winner that he rode, best horse he rode, um, because he had so much speed. I mean, he was a horse with tremendous speed and um, like he'd have won it probably a July Cup if he went to, and, and trained him for it. But um, he, he, he got on so well with these kind of horses. And um, as someone said yesterday, he liked horses with speed. <clears throat> and uh, he rode them to get the very best. You know, they, 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 they seemed to stay for him, even though they had all this, this speed, the way he rode them. Now, Vincent, am I right in thinking that you and Survivor and Lester went on on quite a journey together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went, I went, I went to Italy. That we we took, we took eight horses to Italy that year for the winter. Ground that in Ireland in that spring was very soft, and Doctor O'Brien didn't want to, you know, overwork them on very soft ground. So he took he took a few horses to Newmarket and stable them at the Lynx stables at Newmarket. And Lester uh, used to come down and, and, and sit up and survive another day. And one morning there was, well, we, you know, the final bit of work before the Guineas, we got Brian Taylor to ride a horse called Barry Corn. And I rode a horse called Barry Graff. He was a good lead horse. And Lester came and rode Survivor. Anyway, we worked up parallel with the Cambridge Road. Oh, yes, the other thing was that Dr. Brian had, had put a, a, a light racing saddle on very born that Brian Taylor was riding and Brian arrived with a pair of big jumper boots of course his feet wouldn't fit in the small little racing irons so he has to take her, take her boots off and ride him in your socks which he did and um, anyway, the horse horses worked and survival worked very very well and it happened that his wife Susan was sitting at the end of the gallop he jumped off survival gave the horse to John Brapson who had written him out and jumped in the car and went away. And Mr. Brian arrived and he said, uh, where's Lester? I said, he's got into the car and driven away. What is it? He said, did he say anything? I said, no. <laughs> Brian said, it was a very good bit of work. And, and, and you know, the horse worked very well. But I'd like to know what, he, what he's thinking of it. Anyway, we went back to the stables and had our breakfast. The next thing I saw Lester coming up and sitting outside the window. Beckham took him out, said he. And I said, Mr. O'Brien was looking for you. Where did you go? I went up to Warren Haley to, to ride a Tingo, a bit of work. And I wanted to ride in before I made a decision. So he said, and I said, what decision have you made? He said, I'm, I'll ride survivor. But I said, you better tell the boss. <laughs> so he said, you recommend him. So I went in and rang him. And he said to him, where did you, I thought I told him, and he said, well, it's a funny thing to do. So, he said, I wish he'd tell me what he was doing. So anyway, um, before Lester left, he said, he called you, he said, get the boys out of bed and pack it now. He's about three to one, and, and because if, when it's announced that I write it, he'd be less price. So we did, anyway, that, that was the story of that survivor. Vincent Roster there, and the, the tales of Piggott, figuring out which horse he was going to ride, stretching all the way back to the 1960s and the brilliant survivor. Roster also feels, however, that Piggott was rather misunderstood as a man. Well, people, I think, got the wrong idea a lot about him. I mean, he was 
you know, he, the, the people said he was mean. He, he, he wasn't. He was he was funny. He, I mean, you, I often pulled up and we went to a nice cream shop and he, he was with me going to the car or someplace. And he, he ordered two, two ice creams and he, he had one in each hand and he said, I can't get my hand in my pockets, pay for them. So he'd wind up by paying for the ice cream. But, you know, things like that. But he was, you know, I mean, it's just a, a fun thing with him. And, but he, I always found him very, very generous. And those subtle shades of Piggott that were observed by Rossiter have also been pointed out by trainer Andre Fab, for whom Piggott rode Liferita to classic success in France. He was, a, on top of being a, a great jo- jockey, he was a touching man, you know, a lot of charm and kindness. And he didn't ride a lot for me, you know, but uh, I was really pleased with every ride he gave to my own. Every ride he gave to my horse. I was not really close to him, you know. But I, I felt I, I felt him like that, like that, you know. And I think he, his close friends had the same opinion. He had a, a, a kind authority on the horses, you know. As soon as he was sitting uh, on the horse, the horses, they, they were ready to listen to him and to obey him. It was my feeling. In the Pritidian with the Tarita, he was a useful finish. He gave him a brilliant ride. He won by a nose. And uh, it, it was one of the uh, best, the best victories they had at this time. Thirty times French champion trainer Andre Farb, like Piggott, economical with words but abundant of talent. When Piggott first retired in 1985, I doubt there were many who believed there were many more chapters to be written. How wrong they were! He was sentenced to prison for three years for tax evasion. He served a year of that three-year term. He trained horses in the interim with his wife, Susan, and then he made the most startling comeback to the saddle, which culminated in that victory in 1990 at Belmont Park on Royal Academy. Tom Magna picks up the story again. Yeah, that was a, a time I'll never forget. Obviously, you know, Lester, Lester had, had retired and Vincent... Um, I think Vincent obviously knew for uh, classic park thoroughbreds that he had a, a colt by Nijinsky that was, was pretty special. And he knew that if the horse was going to go to America, there's only one jockey that could get the job done. And the story, the way I remember it, was that Vincent said, listen, you have to show me that you're ready to come back. So they went to the Curra and Vincent had a number of rides there for for Leicester. I think every farmer in Ireland put down the milking bucket and they headed for the Curra. And as far as I'm aware, they say that that's the biggest crowd that they ever had at the Curra. Everybody going there to watch Leicester's great comeback. And as far as I'm aware, he won on all the horses that Vincent put out. And I think he must have walked back in and said to to Vincent, I presume that's good enough. And uh, yeah, off to America they went. Um, and I remember the grandfather didn't go, Vincent didn't go, uh, he stayed at home. And we all watched it in Coolmore. Um, yeah, it was unbelievable. Obviously, you know, Lester, uh, Charles O'Brien led him in. Jack, uh, my grandmother Jacqueline was there, but MV was, was, was back in Ireland. But it was just uh, the atmosphere that was in the, the sitting room in Coolmore that day is something I'll never forget. Um, and I, just the enormity of what Leicester did. 
uh, was fantastic and it's just great to be a part of those those days and you know there, there are things that you know they'll be told for generations to come and I think that's what Lester was he 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 led a life that you know they'll tell stories about him for generations to come and it's just great to have been a, a part of it in a very very small way just 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 watching on Tom Magna and Leicester's heroics at Belmont Park in 1990 were no one-shot wonder in that comeback. He wanted this to go on and to continue and continue it did to the point where by 18 months later he was riding his 30th and final classic winner in the colours of Robert Sangster appropriately enough on Rodrigo de Triano. By that point Ben Sangster was fully appreciative of exactly what was unfolding before his eyes. That was amazing. I mean, you know, to have the great man on on this particular horse, um, you know, Manton and Peter Chappelheim, uh, and that era was in its infancy. So to have this wise man on, on, on board this, this, this horse that, you know, propelled forward and won the English guineas and then won the Irish guineas and then they came back and the... Derby that year, he he. Lester, we, we all went down and had the morning of the stars, and Lester um, was riding Rodrigo, and there was always a doubt whether the horse would stay. Um, and Peter also had Doctor Devious in the race with John Reed up, and and I I know Lester tried his utmost to get off Rodrigo to get on to Doctor Devious because he he just he liked that. But anyhow, he looked after Rodrigo, which which was the way it was when he realised the horse couldn't stay, and then and then. The horse had a break for the for the um, summer and came back. Well, came back later on in the summer for the international at at York. And I remember one particular the particular morning, the sort of eight to ten days before the race, Peter wanted to work the horse, give it a proper gallop to see if it got the horse back to fitness. And Lester came up and and sat on Rodrigo and rode him up the lovely mountain gallop, clapped for gallop there, and could hardly pull the horse up at the top. And there's a big white railing there, and the horse did stop at the end. And we all got back in the car afterwards and tried to sort of inkle how the horse was, but Lester really didn't want to let on too much. I don't know why. I think he might have, you know, he, he just wanted to keep it keep it a little bit to himself anyhow. Um, and um, sure enough, the horse went up to um, New York and, and won that race doing handstands in a very good style and then came back and um, won the champion stakes at uh, Newmarket. So no, it was it was amazing to be associated with, 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 with greatness and to have him sitting on a great horse. Um, and so we, we were in a really spoiled era in the latter part of his life because he must have been, I mean, he must have been, was he 56 then or 54 I in think 1992? He, I, I, think, I think he was 56, yeah. Yeah, quite amazing. Ben Sangster, from 1948 to 1994, with a notable interruption, he was at the top of his game and held everybody in awe. Here's Steve Mellish again. Well, I think you, you, you've got greatness in, 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 in sporting greatness, in all sorts of things, but I think one of the most um, important measures is longevity. I really do. I'm a you know, big golf fan. I'm a huge Jack Nicklaus fan because he was great for a number and number of years. And I feel exactly the same about Leicester, is that you, if you, you can maintain that ability for so long... I mean, I think, you know, I think Frankie Dottori, for example, in modern day... The most remarkable thing about him is is where he is now from being a, a very, very promising teenager to still being a great jockey. I think that is a sign of greatness. He could be great for a while, uh, but he's doing it 
over and over again for a long period of time. I think it's a, a significant measurement in, in, in talent is, is longevity. And so say all of us. And David Yates, that comeback, it is no exaggeration to say one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing sporting comeback of our time. Let's just say Lester Piggott retires at the end of 1985 and that's it. Let's, let's pretend we've never really heard from him again. He just retired into obscurity, lived his, the, the rest of his life. That would still be one of the most incredible racing and world sporting careers there had ever been. If we close the book there, there was no epilogue, nothing else. That's it, 1985. Lester Piggott is done. Well, even then, that would be an extraordinary career. But then, as you say, what happens subsequently? Starts training, has a Royal Ascot winner in his first season as a trainer. Um, he then, of course, there is the, 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 the tax fraud, three and a quarter million quid, and he gets three years of which he serves 366 days in High Point Prison in, in Suffolk. He comes out in October 20, uh, 1988. In 1990, I think there are a couple of rides in charity ride, um, races in Ireland. There's also a ride on a, at a meeting in Peru, of all places, and then the comeback. I remember the, uh, the, the trade edition, uh, I think it was the, I'm pretty sure it was the Racing Post. It could, of course, have been the Sporting Life. Leicester Piggott, Leicester as in, of course, uh, the track in the East Midlands in Oadby, because that's where he was making his return. And, of course, 12 days later to ride the winner of the Breeders' Cup uh, um, mile aboard Royal Academy for Vincent O'Brien. It, it's just an incredible story. And as I say, if, if we'd left it at 1985, it still would have been amazing. But then the, the, um, the, the prison sentence, deciding to come back, then uh, the, the Breeders' Cup victory in 1990, 12 days after his return and riding his final winner. I think it was a, a, a month before his 59th birthday so all absolutely incredible stuff i mean i'm not going to be the first person dave to point out that it seems entirely fitting that we should be celebrating this extraordinary life in the week where the race that you know he was most closely associated with was was run i will rephrase that to make it make grammatical sense but you know what i'm saying and you can give the answer accordingly yeah, well, the, the, the one thing, well, one of the, the strands that runs through the decades of Lester Piggott's career and life is, is his sense of timing. And I mentioned Roberto in 1972 at Epsom. Um, he has that head-to-head uh, -head battle for the, the final furlong and a half. He's against the rail and pretty much, I think, the only point that Roberto's head is a short head in front is on the line and as you say it's a it's it is extremely fitting that we mark and we celebrate his and we obviously mourn his passing but we celebrate his life uh the week of the the derby a race in which he was the dominant force and that those uh, nine triumphs are, are very unlikely 
to be equaled. And uh, this Saturday's race will have an added poignancy, won't it? I mean, um, I'm sure that we will, in the, the Daily Mirror this Saturday, we, we will seek to, to make an appropriate uh, tribute to Lester Piggott because the derby was the race in which he was the dominant force. He passed yesterday and, of course, uh, come Saturday, he will be, again, very much in our thoughts, as much really as... as as, as the runners that are that are taking uh, that are going to the start this weekend, and, and the personalities that surround them. And uh, who do you think Lester Piggott would have ridden in this week's Derby if he had the choice? I'm pretty sure he would have ridden Desert Crown uh, for Sir Michael Stout. I think um, I think that he would have seen that victory at York in the Dante, and would have seen that it promised so much that the horse is still. Uh, rough hewn as he looked on the Knavesmire um, that the ensuing couple of weeks between that race and the Derby at Epsom would bring him forward. Um, you might as well ask me which one would I ride, I suppose, but I, I'm pretty sure that Desert Crown, uh, if he were now looking around trying to uh, get on one, I think that Desert Crown would be the one. Dave, thank you so much once again today. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have, the contributions of so many who've reminded us how we've all been enriched by the man who was Lester Piggott. Bye-bye. Royal Academy and Lester Piggott are six lengths off the lead, but they're launching their rally now as they come down to the final furlong. It's all Greek to me as a short lead, expensive decision, battling back, mark of distinction. Royal Academy is thundering down the centre of the turf course and styling his fifth. They're coming down to the finish. Lester Piggott flailing away. retirement 54 year old Lester Piggott pulls off the upset here you've been listening to Nick Luck Daily brought to you in association with Fitzdares the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary